The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Any number of states could fail to reach a decision and may not be able to uh, submit a vote in favor of one or another candidate, which would effectively disenfranchise the people in those states as well. And so I think it's really important to zoom out and think about those concerns in the moment where we are at present. I mean, we had an election in which tens of millions of people doubted the outcome when all objective observers were quite clear that voting was done safely and securely and there was a clear victor. Uh, in this sort of scenario, there could be this enormous disconnect between how people in the electorate voted and how that's translated into the selection of a president. And that is profoundly concerning given where we are in this democratic moment. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for October 30th, 2023. We are a little more than a year out from the 2024 election an election that in countless ways promises to be unlike any other. One way it might be different is the very real prospect of a scenario in which neither major party candidate secures enough electoral votes to win, kicking the decision to the House of Representatives in what is called a contingent election. Possible third parties are actively discussing the possibility of a contingent election as part of their political strategy, and this talk has many experts and advocates nervous about what chaos the turn to a contingent election might wreak. To talk through what this scenario might mean, I sat down with Beau Tremetier and Aisha Woodward of Protect Democracy, an organization that recently released a report and published a related piece in Lawfare on the topic. They walked me through how a contingent election would work, how it might end up subverting the democratic process, and what alternatives might be out there for those less than content with the two-party status quo. It's the Lawfare podcast for October 30th, The Dangers of a Contingent Election. So, Beau, Aisha... I have you here today to talk about a pretty esoteric part of our political system and our system for selecting a president and a vice president for that matter. And that is this question of contingent elections. Tell us what we mean by contingent elections and tell us how it's been used in the past. I think a lot of people's familiarity with this concept might be limited to the play Hamilton and early American history, where we have the famous kind of Jefferson Burr election and debate. But of course, the process is a lot more than that. Tell us about kind of where it comes from and how it's been used in the past. Bo, I'll start with you on this one. Thanks, Scott. And first, appreciate you bringing us on to the podcast. Excited to talk about this together. So a contingent election, as you noted, is the process for selecting the president and vice president when the electoral college does not produce majority. That Majority threshold has changed over time, but for a while now has been stuck at the number 270, a magic number that's in a lot of our minds when we think about the presidential election. And this is meant to be a way to resolve an electoral college that, again, does not put someone over the majority threshold by sending the question to Congress. The House is given authority to select the president. The Senate is given authority to select the vice president. And in a lot of ways, this reflecting back to, to Hamilton is it's the right place and time to, to think about this because that's when these rules were developed and largely the last time they were applied. Uh, the last contingent election we had was in 1825, just 20 years after the 12th Amendment was ratified. And the 12th Amendment sets forth the, in 101 words, the entirety of 
the legal uh, rules that we have to, to draw upon in conducting a, a contingent election today. As you noted, the first contingent election was in 1801 after Burr and Jefferson tied. They were running mates and in an, a glaring oversight in the initial constitution had not provided a, a way to resolve this possibility where electors from states supporting the same ticket would end up producing a tie. That led to eight days and 36 ballots in the House, which was only finally resolved after renowned Jefferson uh, antagonist Alexander Hamilton uh, believed he was a much better option than Aaron Burr for the presidency. And he convinced a number of Federalist members of the House to abstain, allowing their state's votes to flip to Jefferson. That chaos uh, led to rethinking around the way the presidency should be resolved in a close election like that. And several years later, the 12th Amendment was passed. Unfortunately, they didn't really tackle a lot of the core issues with the contingent election process as set forth in the initial constitution. They largely eliminated or reduced the risk that you'd have two people on the same ticket competing for the presidency, or that you'd end up with uh, a candidate from one party in the presidency and another party in the vice presidency, but didn't fully eliminate that risk. It hasn't been triggered in the presidential context in the last 200 years. Both Strom Thurmond in 1948 and George Wallace in 1968 tried to trigger a contingent election to advance their segregationist platform and to give them leverage in the respective um, House proceedings. Both came very close to succeeding, but but fell just short. So Aisha, tell us a little bit about how the framers settled on this kind of formula that we see, which is this process where if we fail to get the electoral votes, a vote actually gets ends up getting resolved along in the House, for the presidency at least, by state allocations. Each state essentially gets a final vote. Why is that switch in time between the regular election and the contingent election? Um, do we know why the framers settled on this sort of formula? And what about it makes, makes it concerning today in ways that maybe it wasn't for early periods of American history? Thanks, Scott. And echoing Bo, it's great to be here with you today. So as Bo noted, you know, the original Constitution provided the contingent, a contingent election procedure. It was amended in the 12th Amendment and updated to the procedure we know now. But it was contemplated in the beginning. And many framers suspected that this would be the way that most presidents would be selected. I think George Mason said something like he thought 19 out of 20 elections might be decided through a contingent election. And the thinking, I think, at the time was that framers thought that an electoral college majority might be hard to reach regularly um, and that many states would give their electors to candidates who were known sort of locally. And so in that scenario, it made sense to have some sort of backup mechanism in order to winnow down the field of many candidates who might all receive a little bit of support. And, you know, and the alternative being that a candidate who won just one or two states electors um, could just routinely become president. Now, the, the framers prediction was wrong with the fourth presidential election cycle going to a contingent election. But the thinking was that it would actually be in, originally a, a, a pretty common phenomenon, and, and it's why they contemplated and, and originally included it in the Constitution. In terms of what makes it so concerning today, there, there are so many, so many concerns that we can lay out, and they, they fall into a couple of different buckets. Um, one bucket is related to the issue around representation and democratic legitimacy, um, and the other is very much rooted in like the actual process, because while the now 12th Amendment lays out sort of the sequence of events that are supposed to happen around a contingent election, it does very little by way of laying out the process. And Bo and I can maybe take each of these buckets in turn, if that's helpful. So, Bo, let me take Aisha's invitation to do that and turn it back to you. Talk to us about this democratic deficit concern, the fact that democratic representation doesn't get channeled through the contingent election process. How does that true and and what makes it maybe more concerning today than it may have been at the founding? So representation and democratic legitimacy are key concerns here in addition to the procedural issues we're going to discuss in a moment. I think people are 
accustomed to, to a degree, the way the Electoral College works. And there's, of course, a uh, substantial um, criticism of the Electoral College that it's uh, not representative and that it gives more power to some states and less power to others. Uh, but setting aside that critique, the contingent election system is shockingly uh, non-proportional. Uh, so, for example, think about California and Texas. These two states alone uh, represent about 21% of the American population. And that's the almost exactly the same size as the 28 least populous states. Uh, this sort of divergence in state population was was not at all uh, what we saw at the founding. I believe that the biggest and small states were at most maybe a factor of six or seven apart. So there was not the sort of divergence and concentration of, of population. And so dividing up on state lines mattered much less at the time. But coming back to now, like what does that actually mean? How does that translate? So in the Electoral College, California and Texas jointly have 17% of the Electoral College votes. But when we move to the continuing election process, where every state just gets one vote in the House, those two states have just 4% of all votes. The 28 small states, again, which have the same population as California and Texas, have 28% of the votes in Electoral College. So so more than uh, the big states, but, but not uh, a shocking amount more. But in in a contingent election, that goes up to 56%. So they control more than enough votes to determine the outcome. Uh, it's also important to think about Washington, D.C., uh, which, thanks to the 23rd Amendment, has three electors in the Electoral College, but has no role whatsoever in House or Senate proceedings. And it's also possible that, based on the rule adopted in the House, that any number of states could fail to reach a decision and may not be able to uh, submit a vote in favor of one or another candidate, which would effectively disenfranchise the people in those states as well. And so I think it's really important to zoom out and think about those concerns in the moment where we are at present. I mean, we had an election in which tens of millions of people doubted the outcome when all objective observers were quite clear that voting was done safely and securely, and there was a clear victor. Uh, in this sort of scenario, there could be this enormous disconnect between how people in the electorate voted and how that's translated into the selection of a president. And that is profoundly concerning given where we are in this democratic moment. So that's one bucket of concerns. Aisha, tell us about the other bucket, the kind of procedural issues. We're going to go through it in more detail in a minute, but give us kind of the 10,000 foot view, what makes the procedural and technical aspects of this so challenging today? So there are a few different ways uh, in which this raises a number of procedural concerns. And we'll get into them, as you said, a little bit later, but let me sketch out some of the maybe four buckets we would think about within this specific area. The first is the way in which a contingent election and the prospect of one, which would become really apparent soon after November 5th, 2024, would corrupt and potentially impact the election procedures that need to take place between November 5th and January 6th, 2025. So that includes the convening of electors in their states and the possibility of faithless electors trying to throw their votes to sway the electoral outcome in some way. But that also includes the processes that Congress needs to go through when it convenes on January 3rd in 2025 and in joint session on January 6th to count electoral votes. And what I mean by that is that the, the House and Senate, um, but particularly the House, which is you know a new body every two years, will have to convene, select a speaker, seat members, establish rules, all of which in a narrowly divided house could open up the process to members being able to exert enormous influence on what might actually happen when the contingent election takes place. That also feeds into another concern we have, which is about the actual rules that would be set up to govern the contingent election. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Constitution and the 12th Amendment really only generally sketch out what the sequence of events should be, but give no real deep substantive guidance on how the House and Senate are supposed to conduct these processes. And you can imagine, for example, in the House, a real tension emerging between who controls the majority of seats in the next House 
versus who controls the majority of state delegations. And if there's a difference in in those two um, answers, it could create some really scary um, and challenging dynamics that members would have to navigate. Uh, and similarly, that the the Senate has its own um, set of rules challenges, given the likely applicability of, of the filibuster. Another concern we have is around health and safety of both the members of Congress who would be called upon to conduct this contingent election and whose control of individual seats in this scenario would matter a great deal. And given the the way Bo has just sort of laid out how the, the process works and, and the level of influence that small states have, which means small congressional delegations, any individual member, particularly in those small congressional delegations, could face uh, real concerns about about their safety, given the outsized influence they would have on this process. Relatedly, the safety and health of the leading presidential candidates would be a concern. And that is in part because of an issue we'll, we'll go into to later on that makes it difficult to replace a candidate, if not impossible, um, if anything were to happen to them between a certain point in the electoral process in December and when Congress convenes on January 6th in joint session. And finally, the concern that we worry about related to all of these ones I just described is that because of the complexity of and, and opportunity for gridlock and um, fighting over the process in January, it's quite possible that January 20th can roll around and neither the House nor the Senate will have been able to take action to fulfill their duty in the contingent election, which could trigger the Presidential Succession Act. Um, and there's a great deal of debate around this act. And while its specific applicability to a vacancy on January January 20th may be in less dispute. Um, you could end up in a really unusual situation or even incentives to create a situation in which the Speaker of the House or the Senate, President Pro Tem, ascends to the presidency because Congress has been unable to act and fulfill its duty under the 12th Amendment. So there is a ton there, and we're going to get into some more of the details. But of course, there's one other reason why the contingent election process is becoming more of a concern now. And and that's really because it's being raised by uh, at least one political movement that's actively trying to put itself on ballots in different states. That's the no labels movement, who has put forward a pretty novel political strategy that they're working towards, which contingent election seems to fit a role in, at least according to reports about statements they're making to their supporters and others. Tell us a little bit about what we know about how contingent elections fit into that political strategy, uh, both intentionally and potentially unintentionally. But I'll turn it back to you for this. No Labels, for the folks who aren't aware, is a uh, maybe 10, 12-year-old political organization that has long sought to uh, encourage bipartisanship, principally by working with uh, centrist members of the House to, to encourage people to work together and find areas of common agreement. Uh, within the last two years, for, for the first time, they decided that they uh, were going to consider wading into presidential politics, uh, with the idea being that they would put in place the infrastructure to promote a politically centrist, potentially bipartisan presidential ticket for the voters in the political middle who express discontent with Uh, the Democratic option on the left and the Republican option on the right. This has a lot of facial appeal, especially given the increasing numbers of people who express discontent with both political parties. And our organization is strongly supportive of efforts to create more space in our political system for uh, minor parties. And we think it's particularly valuable to have representation for those who are in the political center and don't feel at home and on either side. However, what New Labels is trying to do has never been done. A third party candidate has never come remotely close to being successful in the presidential context. The most recent prominent example, of course, was Ross Perot in 1992, uh, who had broad support throughout the country and ended up with 19% of the popular vote nationwide and zero electors. Uh, The last third party candidate to win any electors was George Wallace, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, And the most prominent third party candidate in American history was Teddy Roosevelt, who 
ran for a third term in the White House after uh, in 1912 uh, on the progressive or bull moose party ticket. And he was walloped by Woodrow Wilson, uh, who won an overwhelming landslide. Uh, and so this is, uh, in a lot of ways, an attempt to defy political gravity. And so for that reason, there is a lot of healthy, healthy skepticism as to the ability of any third party, um, and, and no labels is the only one really trying to do so right now, to win 270 electors. It requires winning places that are deep Democratic strongholds, that are deep Republican strongholds. To be clear, we are not political pundits. Uh, that is not our lane. But we are also able to read the analysis set out by really smart people who do this professionally. And, and, and what we see is consistent with the consensus view is that there's a really difficult path for anyone to come even remotely close to 270. And so what that means is we're in a world in which there are uh, two plausible outcomes. One is, is that no labels attracts a number of politically moderate and centrist voters in key states, and that potentially affects the outcome of those states, but no labels doesn't win any of those places. Um, that is commonly talked about in the you know, horse race spoiler dynamic. Um, that's not the core focus of our work, though it is an important issue to consider. As we've learned from places like Poland and, and looking back in history, to back to the 1930s, the ability of a broad pro-democracy coalition to stay together, to avoid fracturing, to remain united based on their broad and fundamental shared commitment to the rule of law is an essential ingredient to defeating authoritarianism at the ballot box. And a campaign like No Labels that could potentially pull voters away and break that, 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 that coalition into two lines on the ballot uh, is, is concerning. Our focus is on the scenario, which again seems quite plausible to us, that no, their ability to win 270 electors is, is hard to it's hard to see in reality how that's possible. But it seems eminently plausible that they could win one or two states, even a congressional district in Maine or Nebraska. And given how close the race is between the Democratic and uh, Republican candidates, it's that may be enough to bring everyone below 270. No Labels has talked about a contingent election as a, uh, a viable way for someone to ascend to the White House. Uh, they, at the same time, will, will, will say that they see a viable path to, to 270. But again, I don't think there are many kind of independent observers who, who think that that is highly plausible at this time. And just to drill on one part of the strategy point, my understanding is that part of their strategy as articulated is the idea that they would be able to win a certain number of electors and then guide those electors as kind of a kingmaking role and get certain concessions from one party or the other. Aisha, how, does, how realistic does that seem to you? Does that run into other barriers and how does that relate to this risk of switching into a contingent election? Yeah, it's a great question and, and worth emphasizing, as Bo said, it's it's not only the case that we're concerned about this because of the research we've done and scholars we've spoken to, we're concerned about it because No Labels is, is talking about this as one potential pathway. And one version of, of their um, strategy that they've discussed publicly in a few instances is this idea that faithless electors could somehow, of, of theirs, um, could somehow tip the election and, and be decisive in some way. And now, as many of your listeners know, electors are supposed to cast their votes for their party's pledge ticket. Um, and some states have passed laws to enforce that pledge. Even so, like sometimes electors choose not to adhere to that pledge. And I think there have been at least one of these so-called faithless electors in more than half of the presidential elections um, since the late 1940s. And you can see how, given the prospect of a contingent election maybe hovering on the, the horizon in the post-election scenario in 2024, that maybe there'd be increased 
incentives for electors to try to play some sort of king-making role. And we're concerned about that because, you know, while a number of states have passed laws to enforce their or, or to have, have enforcement mechanisms for their faithless elector laws, some do not. Even so, I think uh, it, it seems unlikely for a number of reasons, not least of which is some of the states that maybe are best positioned to award an elector or electors to no labels actually do have these laws on the books and effectively cancel an elector's vote and replace it with a a pledged elector to the the appropriate candidate if an elector tries to cast a faithless vote. And so it's just not super plausible. It's also um, hearkening back to some of the earlier concerns Bo mentioned, uh, another way in which the, the way no labels is talking about this impact they might have on the 2024 election is profoundly undemocratic um, to kind of depart from your committed pledge, your voters voted effectively for these electors and, and allow them to sort of switch sides based on a process that is in no way transparent to your voters uh, is, is really concerning. And so it's it, it just underscores, I think, the, the seriousness with which we, we think this no labels bid should be taken because they're talking about this so directly um, without really thinking through in our view, the, the consequences of, of how this might play out. And I think w- we view it as much more likely that there wouldn't be some sort of determinative faithless elector situation that would, would allow them to serve as kingmaker in, in the post-2024 environment, but instead that we would, would find ourselves in a lack of um, any candidate having a majority on January 6th and, and leading into the contingent election process. One brief point of emphasis here we have no problem with No Labels as an organization or their platform. Again, we think it could be really valuable to have in a system that permits it centrist political power. Uh, The concern here is unlike any other third party effort currently in development, they have the ability, it's the plausibility of winning somewhere. And so that's why they have been central to our concern and analysis of this issue. Fair. And it's worth noting, of course, they're not the only third-party candidate. We already know Robert Kennedy is running as a third-party candidate, has declared his intent to do so. Uh, and so there might be other people who find themselves in a similar role, even if they're not speaking about it as directly. So it may be more of an institutional concern with really any third party uh, to some extent in this particular political dynamic. Is that fair to say? I think so. A- any party that has a viable path to winning electors presents this risk most acutely. Other third parties play a role in, but by, by earning a small percent of the vote, they in effect lower the threshold required for anyone to win a specific state's electors. So they contribute indirectly, but, but not in the same way as a, as a party who has a real chance of winning a state. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Okay, so we've gotten a lot of the big issues on the table now, but let's drill down into brass tacks now and get through the actual process. Contingent election kicks in at the point where Congress has gathered the electoral votes. It's tried to count them, and it's determined that no candidate for the presidency or the vice presidency gets has a majority of those electoral votes, and that's where this process kicks in. Aisha, walk us through in broad strokes, and then we'll drill it down into some specific details. What happens then, both for the presidency and the vice presidency? 
Sure. So the 12th Amendment stipulates that if no candidate receives a majority of electoral votes when Congress convenes on January 6th to count electoral votes, the House must turn immediately, is the language, to a contingent election. But unlike in other ways that the House votes, um, the, the 12th Amendment also stipulates that House members choose the president among the top three presidential candidates, but vote not on an individual basis, but as state delegations. Uh, every state gets one vote and a majority of states, 26 today, is required to select the vice president. The Senate in this scenario is tasked with selecting the vice president among the top two vice presidential candidates. And a candidate in this situation becomes vice president with majority of support. 51 votes if all senators are present. Um, and as referenced earlier, Washington, D.C., although having three votes in the Electoral College, thanks to the 23rd Amendment, does not participate in either the House or Senate proceedings. If the House is unable to select a president by January 20th, the vice president-elect will serve as acting president, unless and until the House renders a decision. But if neither the House nor Senate make a selection by January 20th, then the next eligible person in the presidential line of succession then serves as acting president until either of the chambers fulfill their respective duty. So let's focus on the House, which I think is the more challenging part of this. Uh, you know, the first question that gets raised is the fact that these votes are taking place state by state. You know, each state has a different number and different composition party-wise of uh, their delegation to the House. How is it that each state is expected to resolve who they're voting for. What do we know about that procedure? Right now, that's an open question. When in 1825, the House set a rule that each state delegation would render a decision once it had reached a majority vote in favor of one of the three candidates. But that is not required by federal law. That's certainly not in the Constitution itself. It was merely the decision reached by an ad hoc committee created at the beginning of the process. So Congress would have, the House would have to do the same thing again this time. It would figure out what its voting rules were. And it seems that the House has very wide latitude. It could follow past practice and it could set a majority threshold once again. It could lower the bar. It could say that whichever candidate has a plurality support in a state wins that state's vote, or it could ratchet up the threshold. It could require a supermajority or even in theory, unanimity. And what's important about that decision is this allows the party who controls a majority of seats in the House to likely, given the, the clarity with which almost all individual members' votes will be, will be known beforehand, to predetermine the likely outcome. This could allow for setting a threshold that ensures the House delivers 26 or more state delegations to a preferred candidate, but it also could be used to, to create a stalemate where no one can get to 26 because of very high bars being set. Uh, and that would then trigger the succession on Inauguration Day and could allow for the vice president-elect or other officers uh, under the Presidential Succession Act to assume the role of, of acting president. And this is one of our key concerns is that this is unknown and is easily subject to abuse and manipulation um, by a party that controls the majority in the House. And, and the tension would be particularly heightened if another party controls the majority of state delegations. And, and Republican, the Republican Party is almost guaranteed, just given the distribution of seats, to control at least a majority in at least 26 state delegations. And that number could increase, even if Democrats take back the House and have a slim majority themselves in 2025. This is a problem that's kind of localized to the House. How does the Senate deal with the same parallel set of questions, Bo? The Senate, it's a little bit more straightforward in that every senator gets a single vote. But there's a threshold challenge in that uh, in our conversations with congressional and, and Senate experts, uh, there's consensus view that the filibuster would apply. So unless you have unanimous consent to uh, adjust the rule for this vote, you would need to break a filibuster in order to advance to vote for the vice presidential nominee. Uh, the alternative, of course, is the so-called nuclear option, which would eliminate the filibuster in this context 
obviously efforts to to do that in uh, in in other high stakes contexts have fallen short, and so you end up with a substantial possibility that the Senate is itself gridlocked and stalemated and, and unable to uh, move forward to a vote. And I think this is and few expect the Senate to have a majority of more than a small handful of seats. And so it's highly unlikely that either side would have the 60 votes needed to advance without having to invoke the nuclear option. So Asia, we have a situation here where we know there might be a high threshold for getting action done in the Senate. We know the House rules are likely to be contentious, potentially outcome determinative, but also lots of possibility for debates within state delegations, within other delegations. My understanding of the rule, correct me if I'm wrong, is that even in the House, you still need a majority of the states to win. So even by the Republicans control majority of 26 state delegations, if they were to lose one or two, uh, you might not have anybody get a majority of the state delegations. What happens if these processes stalemate? Uh, You mentioned this a little bit briefly before, but where does that lead? So if we get to January 20th and neither the House nor the Senate have taken action, we do get into Presidential Succession Act territory, um, which stipulate that the line of succession is triggered. And in this case, um, first up in the line of succession is the Speaker of the House, then followed by the President pro tem, which is usually the most senior member of the party that holds the Senate majority. Of course, they can't just sort of slip into the the presidency for some amount of time and then ride their way back to Congress. The the requirement would be that they actually resign their seats uh, in order to serve as president. So um, you can imagine a scenario in which um, if, if it's not certain how long this vacancy might last, that those members might not be interested in leaving their very senior roles in Congress um, to, to serve only temporarily as, as uh, the president. In that case, if, if neither of those legislative officers choose to or are eligible to ascend to the presidency, you go into the highest ranking qualified cabinet member. First in line is the secretary of state. And this would be of the kind of existing and or outgoing administration. So right now that's secretary Blinken. And it's worth noting there there is some scholar legal, legal scholars who have some questions about the ability of legislative officers to serve in the line of succession. That debate is usually more located in a question about what happens if uh, a president dies or is incapacitated like during a term. Um, and there's a, a bit less debate around a vacancy at the start of a new term. But even so, you can imagine with the stakes being so incredibly high in this scenario that there could be real challenges to, to who is the right and eligible person to serve first in the line of succession um, and a question about whether the Supreme Court would or can weigh in to resolve that dispute. But the possibility of the Succession Act being triggered also creates concerning incentives to Bo's point about the difficulty of, of the rules process in both the House and Senate playing out and the, the possibility of a gridlock. But there might also be the, the desire to create a gridlock in order to trigger the Succession Act, um, particularly if, for example, the Speaker of the House is of a party that's at odds with the, the majority of state delegations. So there's at least one other contingency I think we have to think about and that's something that's been raised numerous times the course of this election. I'm sure it's been raised more. It's the fact that President Joe Biden is going to be, if if reelected or if uh, on the precipice of being reelected, the oldest potential president ever sitting, uh, maybe the oldest nominee. I actually don't know, but I suspect he is, uh, or is, is certainly up there. And of course, former President Trump, if he ends up being the nominee, is not a spring chicken either, uh, and is relatively older than most candidates. I think was one of the, is one of the oldest, um, other than former President Biden. Meaning, there's a, not a zero chance that we could see one of these candidates even pass away while this process remains unresolved. The Constitution says, essentially, look, you're supposed to pick of the three biggest electoral vote winners in the House for the presidency, two biggest for in the Senate for the vice presidency. But what happens if one of those numbers dies and what impact does that have on the process? Bo, I'll turn to you on this. Unfortunately, right now, if no further action was taken, uh, what would happen is there would only be two eligible candidates before the House in the uh, contingent election itself. Um, There would be no ability for a replacement candidate 
from the deceased candidate's party. And this is the only window in the entire presidential process where one side has no ability to backfill a vacancy um, in the unfortunate circumstance that one arises. Congress could, to be clear, Congress has the constitutional authority to address this problem. The 20th Amendment expressly contemplated this issue and authorized Congress to pass a statute providing a mechanism to replace a candidate in this context, but has failed to act. It's maybe notable that there has been some attention to this issue in the recent Congress. Uh, you have some bipartisan legislation, I believe, and supported by the new Speaker Johnson that would kind of set in motion a process for Congress to seriously examine this question and possibly contemplate a legislative solution. Uh, that would be, of course, a welcome development to shore up one of these many concerning vulnerabilities. Uh, and I, I think it's important to note as well that it's not just the age of the candidates here that is concerning, but a situation in which there is a political incentive to create a vacancy on one of the sides is a really dangerous position to be in. If people, if rogue agents know that the elimination of one candidate means that that party can't ascend to the White House, that is a terrifying and, and dangerous rule uh, and set of um, incentives to, to create out in the world um, and one that we should avoid at all costs. So you guys have done a great job sketching out all of the unknowns, the very dangerous unknowns that come from the contingent election process, all the reasons why it's something we shouldn't approach too willy-nilly if we're serious about both having a president come out of the next presidential election and a vice president, um, but also having them be representative of our democratic process and uh, the broader democratic whims of our of our voting public. That said, you know, I do want to channel the view of those who may be tempted to vote for a third party candidate because they are disenchanted by either the specific candidates or the platforms or just the general process that that leads to our political system being dominated by two major parties. Are there other ways that voters could channel that discontent um, that might find better expression politically, policy-wise, that don't run the risk of triggering these kind of catastrophic uh, or potentially catastrophic outcomes. Bo, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that really reflects two of the most prominent trends and challenges facing our democracy right now. On one hand, what do we do about an electorate that is deeply dissatisfied with, frustrated with, feels unrepresented by a pretty rigid two-party system. And at the same time, how do we maintain and sustain a broad electoral coalition in defense of democracy in order to defeat anti-democratic extremism? And then how do we reconcile both of those competing challenges with the existing institutional rules that we have, some of which are constitutionally required, some of which are not? It's a tough question. And, and I think that one of the promising solutions that, that we've spent time exploring is really thinking about how to give minor parties a more constructive role, how to create space for us to have a less rigid uh, two-party system. And one of the most promising ways to do that would be a, a light lift in some states. It would be that no change is actually required in, in a number of other states. And it would be uh, an attempt to revert back to the way we used to conduct elections um, up until uh, the turn of the 20th century. And that was by permitting more than one party to nominate the same candidate. This would allow multiple groups of voters representing different viewpoints to negotiate together and form an alliance and allegiance in which they got to represent their different perspectives, but did so in support of a single candidate, which would allow for all of their collective voting power to go behind one person uh, instead of um, splintering among several and risking the election of a candidate that all of those voters liked the least. And th this is referred to as fusion voting. It sounds a little sophisticated, but it's really quite simple. We think that that could be a really powerful way for a lot of voters, particularly those in the middle, those who feel you know, politically homeless, as a lot of folks describe it, between the two major parties would allow them to develop 
and really proudly proclaim their different political identity separate and apart from the two parties, and then to use their collective power and their place on the ballot to support the uh, election of a better candidate. And again, in this moment, a candidate who is demonstrates a stronger commitment to, to core principles like the rule of law and democracy itself. So I think there's a lot of promise in bringing back something that had been a part of our elections for decades. Along that same vein, of course, there is kind of a problem with this set of problems in that it is kind of endemic to any serious third party effort. But there might be reasons why people think a third party is appropriate um, or a third party is desirable. Um, you know, it's certainly many other countries deal with constellations of political parties, don't find themselves so rigidly attached to two major leading political parties. Now, there are kind of constitutional constraints on what we can do with political parties, and, and the incentive presented by them probably almost certainly are a big reason we've ended up with two major political parties. But are there things that Congress or the states could do that might make it so that engaging in third party political activity isn't as risky as it is in the status quo, where you risk throwing the whole political system into a very undemocratic space if you have the sort of success you aspire to as, as a political party? Are there kind of changes to our voting structure that we could pursue that, that might make that less of a risky enterprise? Yeah, there are a surprising number of things that can be done at a subconstitutional level. And one is what I was just talking about a moment ago, fusion voting. These are statutory bars in dozens of states. Some don't have them. And this process could be embraced kind of out of the gate, but others would be a simple repeal uh, of existing state legislation. There's pending litigation to challenge the constitutionality of some of those restrictions. And full disclosure, uh, my organization is bringing a, a case of that sort in New Jersey, challenging their anti-fusion laws. But Congress could also, without having to touch the Constitution, could reorganize itself to embrace proportional representation. And it's similar to uh, many other multi-party systems around the world. There's no constitutional hurdle for them to do so. Uh, and that's another issue that our organization spends a lot of time exploring. And there's broad consensus uh, within political science that moving from single winner, single member districts to multi-winner proportional representation for Congress would allow could allow for a few more parties to emerge for people to uh, work together effectively and meaningfully in third parties in a way that would make those votes extremely meaningful and 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 would completely kind of turn on its head uh, the the value and import and potential consequences of, of voting on uh, a third party line. So more directly for this scenario we're facing now, are there still steps, Aisha, that states, Congress, other parties could take that might help resolve a contingent election contingency, that sort of scenario or outcome, limit the outside risk of it proving to be catastrophic or, or resulting in any sort of these perverse outcomes we've outlined? Are there lower hanging fruit that still could help avert those potential risks, even if we do end up seeing a major third party challenge, for example? Sure. It's a great question. And being in the middle of a presidential election cycle, it makes it obviously so much harder to, to contemplate what might be done. But there are a few things that we think are worth contemplating, maybe going from most possible and feasible to a bit harder. On the most possible side of the ledger, states, you know, we talked about faithless elector states that currently lack proper enforcement mechanisms for their faithless elector laws, or who don't have any faithless elector laws to begin with, could pass laws with strong enforcement mechanism, making it impossible for those types of votes to be cast by automatically rejecting or replacing them. Um, that could eliminate one piece of the pathways that No Labels is talking about as a possible way to influence the 2024 election. Further along the line, as we mentioned, Congress could pass a law at least clarifying what happens if a candidate dies between that period of time between electors convening in December and Congress convening on January 6th. And as Bo mentioned, there is some bipartisan legislation historically kicking around Congress that that could still um, address this issue and at least remove one piece of, of doubt in this process. 
further down the line and, and a bit harder, admittedly, to consider is, is that Congress could pass a law that clarifies contingent election procedures more broadly and answers some of these questions that we've laid out. And then much further along on the horizon, you know, I think there's there's a need to discuss constitutional reform around these issues to resolve some of the open questions and ambiguities, including the eligibility of legislative officers to serve as acting president, um, even the question of whether or not we should eliminate the contingent election process altogether and just award the presidency to the candidate who finishes first in the Electoral College. Candidly, you know, some of these solutions are much harder to, to contemplate in the time frame we have. Um, and, and that's why we're raising the alarm now and think it's important for, for your listeners and the public more broadly to, to be thinking about these issues and weighing them as we get into proper election season. Well, that is certainly a tall order of reforms. Regardless, it sounds like we will have opportunities to get together and talk about this issue more in the future. But for the time being, we are out of time. Bo, Aisha, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org support. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachahal and produced by me. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.